Welcome to a special edition of the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardile. As attentive listeners of the program might already know, the Weekly Appellate Report is on a brief summer hiatus as we work on great programs to bring you after Labor Day. But we wanted to record and air something of a mini-episode this week, examining a unique issue the newspaper has been covering regarding the federal appellate court here on the west coast of the Ninth Circuit, and attention it's gotten, not all of it positive, for its judicial reassignment practices to become particularly exigent at present, because over the course of five months this past year, the composition of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals underwent a rapid and profound remaking, as three of its longest tenured and most prominent judges departed the bench in quick succession. Senior Judge Harry Pregerson, a liberal stalwart and 40-year veteran on the court, passed away in November. A month later, the circuit's former chief, Judge Alex Kaczynski, known for a lively libertarian professional and personal style bordering on the ribald, retired after a raft of sexual misconduct allegations against him surfaced. Then in March, Judge Stephen Reinhardt, the last of the Carter judges, whose judicial imprints are all over the modern Ninth Circuit, died suddenly. The unexpected and nearly coincidental departure of these three men, all still managing busy caseloads, left the Ninth Circuit with three consequential robes to fill, but more immediately with a pressing need to figure out exactly how to appropriately render opinions in cases Judges Pregerson, Kaczynski, and Reinhardt had worked on. In certain matters, departed judges had contributed more or less fully at each stage of a ruling's life cycle short of an opinion's filing. This prompted uncommon and unique questions for the court to answer, like, should a deceased judge's written opinions be issued posthumously? Or should his votes, and perhaps decisive ones, be included in final results? Or should any and all cases heard and voted on by departed judges be reconsidered, adding stress to an already overworked circuit? In the view of some, the court has answered these questions in a frustratingly inconsistent manner, issuing some opinions written by the deceased Pregerson or Reinhardt and issuing one ruling, including a decisive Reinhardt vote four months after the judge's passing, though that decision was subsequently withdrawn, other matters have drawn reassignment and reconsideration. Today we'll speak with our Ninth Circuit reporter, Nick Sonnenberg, who examined the unique present circumstances in an excellent article published earlier this week in the Daily Journal. He'll explain the circuit's existing rules for handling judge reassignments and how their ambiguity might be leading to confusion and some consternation on the part of court watchers and attorneys. Then, Renowned federal courts scholar Arthur Hellman from the University of Pittsburgh Law School will join Nick and I to discuss some of the legal and policy considerations that bear on the issue of how courts should handle these vacancies and how the Ninth Circuit might be best served moving forward with the slew of outstanding cases to which Judges Pregerson, Kaczynski, and Reinhardt had been assigned. Before hearing from those two gentlemen, though, a couple of quick reminders As you've likely been made aware already, our podcast can be found on your mobile device as of a couple of months ago. Look for it in the podcast app on Apple devices, and I believe also the podcast player app on Android devices. To search weekly appellate report, and it should pop up. Any subscriptions, rates, reviews, and the like are tremendously appreciated there. And as you may have also noted, our family of podcasts is growing. Two additional pods have joined the weekly appellate report in that Daily Journal feed. You can find a couple of episodes that have aired so far in the series Courts and Capital, hosted by our Sacramento reporter Malcolm McLaughlin, covering news and legal issues most salient at the state's capital. Also, 
You can check out DJ on the JD, a reporter Lyle Moran's, coverage of issues in legal education. Without any further ado, then, I'd like to bring in Ninth Circuit reporter Nick Sonnenberg, who recently penned a very thorough examination of the issues confronting the Ninth Circuit here. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Brian, thanks for having me. Okay, so um, at the top of your piece, you note that it's a, an issue with some pretty considerable magnitude, not only because of the, the prominence and the importance of the judges who departed the bench to passing on and, and one Judge Kaczynski retiring abruptly under some scandal, but also because the, the three judges were, were pretty active and so they left behind a, a good number of, of assigned cases, leaving the circuit with some uncertainty as to what to, to do with them. Could you give me sort of some sense of, of that amount, you know, how just how many assigned cases here are left behind by these judges? Right. I don't know, obviously, the exact number of assigned cases, but both Kaczynski and Reinhardt were active judges and had, uh, you know, under their belt the full set of cases under submission. They were set to sit on argument uh, panels for the rest of the year and were, you know, ready to participate in the court's decision-making full steam ahead. Judge Pragerson was on senior status but was still regularly sitting on panels and, and participating in the court's adjudication of cases. So the departure of three judges over this five-month period certainly left a big hole on a court that is already understaffed. Yeah, and that departure of three judges just over a span of five months, that is pretty darn rare, right? You looked into, I guess, how often the court has to deal with the, the passing of a judge and even, you know, just one single judge passing on while sitting on the bench is you know, not terribly common it itself. So obviously dealing with three departures quickly is pretty rare. When is sort of the last time the circuits had to deal with something like this? Right. This is um, a bit of uncharted territory for the court. The last active judge to die while on the bench was Judge uh, Ann Reimer. She died in 2011. Um, and before that, the most recent passing of an active judge was in 1988 when uh, Judge J. Blaine Anderson died. So there really isn't a lot of historic precedent for such swift succession of judges leaving the bench, naturally. Senior judges pass, but uh, most of them have a, a fairly reduced caseload, so it's not as much of a burden on the court as as this circumstance was. Okay, so one thing that people have noticed in the the intervening months between the departure of these three judges and now is, you know, some footnotes in a variety of opinions that have been filed or maybe withdrawn in those opinions. Of course, these judges were, were part of the panels that heard the matter or maybe ruled on the matter. And there seems to have thus far been no very keen clarity or consistency in exactly the the circuit's approach to how to deal with these situations. Um, there is a rule, though, governing it. It's General Order 3.2, subsection H, as you write. So what what is that rule, and what about it is, is sort of leaves the ambiguity that people have noticed? Right. So the rule says um, simply that the clerk of court, in, in this sort of circumstance, shall draw a replacement as needed, you, you, uh, utilizing a list of active judges randomly drawn by lot. But that's all it really says. It doesn't clarify, elaborate as to what as needed means. And and so on its face, it's an ambiguous uh, requirement for the court. What we've learned is that the way it's applied is at the discretion of the judges. 
according to the clerk of court, Molly Dwyer, uh, as long as one judge requests such a reassignment, in her experience, that's been enough to trigger the rules use. But it depends on how far along the case is after being under submission. According to uh, Molly Dwyer, it depends on whether draft uh, opinions have been circulated, whether concurrences and dissents have been filed. Unfortunately, uh, to litigants, to attorneys, to parties involved, to court watchers, none of us know, you know, that behind-the-scenes activity, understandably. And so, to the public, it appears that there is lack of uniformity, at least, in when the rule is actually applied. So then, say, the panel that comprised one of the ju- these judges heard the, the argument, the cause was submitted, say they conferenced, the majority opinion was was written, perhaps a dissent or concurrence was written, and say after that point, before it's filed, you know, Judge Reinhardt, for example, passes away, so long as none of the other two remaining judges sort of object, then his vote could be, be included in the, in the final opinion. Is that roughly the approach? Right, that's my understanding. And it's important to note that it's pretty well established that so long as very little decision-making has been done, a judge is, without fail, automatically reassigned. Um, Obviously, a judge is automatically reassigned to the panel if the case has not yet been argued um, or officially submitted to the court. Let's ground this in a a couple of examples because it's not theoretical anymore. We've had certain opinions that have been rendered, including votes or indeed uh, opinions written by some of these departed judges. And in some of those matters, the votes and opinions have, have sort of decided the outcome. You, you describe a few of these. Could you, could you mention um, a couple here that have attracted folks' attention? Right. So the, the case that really kicked off this controversy, if you'd like to call it that, is the Altera Corporation decision. The Ninth Circuit published the decision on July 24th of this year. Chief Judge Sidney Thomas authored the majority opinion, and Judge Kathleen O'Malley, uh, visiting from the Federal Circuit, dissented. But according to uh, the document, or according to the opinion, Judge Reinhardt concurred uh, with Thomas's majority opinion before his death. It should be noted that this came out four months after he passed away. And several professors and, and litigants objected to this type of decision-making, saying that it, it just had a the, the appearance of impropriety, even if nothing was wrong. Many people have speculated that Judge O'Malley had not yet finished her dissent, and there's a possibility that had she, Judge Reinhardt might have joined her uh, opinion. But this isn't the only case uh, to receive attention. In what appears to be Judge Reinhardt's last written opinion, he, he authored an opinion for a six-judge majority in an en banc sitting in Rizzo versus Uvino, and the case has attracted national media attention because he articulated that companies could not justify pay discrepancies between men and women based solely on uh, prior pay. Five judges on that panel uh, concurred, uh, but wrote, I mean, significantly different opinions, saying that it was sometimes acceptable. And uh, many legal scholars have noted that if he had not authored that opinion, if he had been replaced, the, the majority opinion could have become a plurality, or the other judges might have scattered into, you know, other opinions. 
Um, another case that has attracted some attention is Alaska Airlines versus Shirk. This was another en banc decision. Judge Kaczynski was sitting on the panel, and he was replaced by Judge Paez. The ultimate decision was split 6-5 along ideological lines or traditional ideological lines, and many have also speculated that that, that case flipped uh, because of the replacement of the conservatives would have been in the majority had Kaczynski remained on the bench, but Paez's addition to the panel um, allowed the liberals to offer the majority opinion. If you know, do parties in any of those cases, like maybe that, that most recent one, that Alaska Airlines case, do they think or do you think it might be a reasonable grounds for kind of a motion to uh, rehear? Right. So with the Rizzo case in the Alaska Airlines, really the only next step here would be a petition for certiorari. The Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, has officially weighed in as an en banc court, and so there is no way to go back. Um, in the Altera decision, a petition for rehearing would certainly be an option. Attorneys involved in that case didn't want to speak about it because the panel was ultimately reconstituted after there was some outcry about Judge Reinhardt's concurrence, and the decision was withdrawn, and so now um, the case will be uh, decided with uh, the addition of Judge Susan Graber, who will sit on the panel. So they were not keen on talking publicly about the decision until it was rendered. So it's it's hard to know whether they would have objected uh, formally uh, to the decision to include Reinhardt's concurrence in a petition for rehearing. One other, so I mean, most of the instances that we've discussed have been times where a departed judge has either voted or or written an opinion that subsequently files. But there's also a circumstance that you, you wrote about that's interesting where uh, Judge Pregerson had heard a case and, and filed an opinion in an immigration case last year. It was rendered before he passed away, but because, I guess, subsequently, right, there was a petition for rehearing on Bonk, then that sort of opinion went in, into the, the ether, essentially, based on his no longer being around. How, how did that work? So the case is Sanchez versus Sessions. It was one of Reinhardt's final, uh, excuse me, uh, one of Pragerson's final published opinions. And in it, he said that guessing about one's ethnicity or race could not be justification for detention in the immigration setting. And then naturally, a decision like that attracted a lot of attention. The government petitioned for a rehearing, and Judge Pragerson uh, passed away before the petition was dealt with. Judge Kim McLean Wardlaw was assigned to the panel. And uh, just recently, the opinion that Judge Pragerson wrote was withdrawn. That's because even though opinion has been published, its order is not final until the mandate issues, which doesn't happen until mm-hmm. uh, petitions for rehearing are dealt with. Now, there's been lots of speculation about this case, and it's hard to know what exactly happened. The Ninth Circuit operates, the way the Ninth Circuit operates, judges um, do a lot of internal memo writing and try and suggest to panel members that they might vote for a rehearing if they find a case to be problematic. And so it's possible that uh, judges within the Ninth Circuit had indicated to the newly constituted panel that there might be an internal call for en banc rehearing, meaning that the new panel decided that they would rewrite the decision. But unfortunately, all we can do is speculate. 
So you've spoken with the clerk of the Ninth Circuit Court, Molly Dwyer, as to the current approach and the attention it has, has gotten, not all of it positive. Did you get a sense from her what the court is thinking in terms of reconsidering or clarifying its policy or enacting some, some new approaches in response to the attention that has been drawn? She wasn't able to uh, to answer definitively whether the court will, in fact, officially change the rule, but she did say that she wouldn't be surprised if the court took up the issue in some way to make their rule more transparent. I read that as an indication that there will likely be some sort of change, or at least a discussion of change, um, in the near future. Obviously, this sort of change doesn't happen overnight. There's a whole rulemaking process that must be followed, but it seems clear that the court is aware of the concern and is is acting on it. Do you ha- have you gotten the sense from from any any judges as to some frustration in in the the approach that's currently used? Any um, sense that there there needs to be some more some more clarity or consistency in in the way these um, scenarios are are handled? Well, it's hard to know what. The current members of the Ninth Circuit think, you know, they're they're not keen on commenting publicly on much. But there is an interesting uh, 2008 case that I reference in the article uh, involving a, a panel that was composed of Judge Reinhardt, uh, Judge Mylon Smith Jr., and uh, former Judge Warren J. Ferguson. They were considering whether um, a Washington state law that allowed uh, sex offenders early release into community custody, and they were deciding whether that ex- that law established a protected liberty interest. Um, the panel split on the issue. Reinhardt and Ferguson concluded that it did, and Smith dissented. But shortly after the opinion was released, Judge Ferguson died, and uh, the state petitioned for a rehearing. Judge Richard Talman was um, selected as a replacement, and that development allowed Smith to dissent, Smith's dissent to become the majority opinion, um, and Reinhardt's opinion to become the dissent, and then shortly uh, thereafter amended opinion. Um, and Reinhardt objected strongly, as he often did, to uh, things that he found problematic, writing, it's indisputable that the law did not change and the Constitution did not change between the time of the original panel's decision and the time of the new majority's opinion. All the change is the composition of the three-judge panel. So as a matter of law, Reinhardt was at least apparently upset um, and, and, and angered enough to write about this when the opinion was amended. I do think it's interesting to note in the Altera case that the dissenting judge did not uh, object, at least in her dissent, to the fact that Reinhardt's vote was uh, used as the concurring vote to make Judge Thomas's the majority. So. Perhaps there's not a uniform anger about this or uniform concern, but it really is just hard to tell. Yeah, it certainly seems that there is a variety of different kind of dynamic considerations that, that bear on on the situation, certainly dynamics that could inform and, and engender some different viewpoints on the matter. We're, we're joined now by Professor Arthur Hellman, federal courts scholar from University of Pittsburgh Law School, to give us a a bit more of a sense of, of some of those different considerations and, and dynamics. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Maybe first, if we could kind of outline some of the most important factors and, and considerations that sort of bear 
on on the question of, of when and how judges who have departed or deceased should be reassigned. You know, what, what are some of the, the considerations? Obviously, there's sort of judicial economy, there's consistency. Uh, what 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 kind of all is in the mix here, and what are sort of the factors that you think are most important? Well, I, I suppose the first factor um, is whether the law requires something different than what the Ninth Circuit and perhaps some other circuits have, have done. There's a recent letter that uh, Professor Stephen Sachs of Duke Law School wrote to the Appellate uh, Rules Committee suggesting that uh, the Judicial Code, Title 28, uh, actually does not allow what the Ninth Circuit did in the Altera case. So he, he makes a pretty good argument on that, but in my view, the we, we don't need to get into the statute because the policy arguments are so strong that decisions should be made final by judges who are who are participating in the court's work at the time the decision actually comes down and the reason for that is pretty a pretty fundamental aspect of the judicial process which is that judges are supposed to keep an open mind until the decision is final mm-hmm. and if the decision is, if the, if the judge is not available, is cannot be participating at that time, then you violated that basic precept. If I could just uh, follow up on, on that. There is a, a good bit of of that concern is underscored or, or highlighted or stressed in in the letter that you mentioned by Professor Sachs. Nick and I had had been talking before we started recording about, I guess, you know, where the important dividing line is. So, for instance, if a judge is able to, before either passing away or departing the court, to fully consider the case and to cast a vote and perhaps even you know, write the majority opinion, as, as Judge Reinhardt did in a case that was subsequently published after he passed, uh, is sort of that is far enough to reach, a far enough point to reach. But it sounds like um, you say their policy concerns weigh heavily enough that that's sort of not enough reaching that point. That the judge must be on the court when the the decision has has filed. Yes, uh, and the the better example here is the Altera case, that the tax case that that started this uh, controversy, because the, apparently the dissenting opinion was not completed, had not been circulated at the time that the that Judge Reinhardt died. And it's at least possible that upon reading that uh, dissenting opinion, he would have changed his mind. We don't know that. We're speculating. People think it unlikely for various reasons. But I think the appearance here is, is quite important, that, that rules should be predicated on the assumption that judges retain an open mind until they must sign off on an opinion. So we know that the Ninth Circuit's general order, uh, 3.2H, is, is, I mean, on its face, pretty vague. It says that the court shall draw a replacement as needed, utilizing a list of active judges, but the rule itself doesn't elaborate on what the term as needed means. Um, we know that Molly Dwyer has told us that this rule uh, is applied, I guess the best way to say it is, at the discretion of the remaining judges on the panel. What would you say the main flaws with the Ninth Circuit's approach to this issue is here as it is currently exercised? I think part of it is is the the way it looks because there is so much leeway, as you point out. People today 
unfortunately are do not have the trust in institutions that I think they did 20, 30, 50 years ago, however far back you want to go. And I think that having bright line rules that constrain judges are important. And I would also add that the Ninth Circuit was faced here with something extraordinary. First, in December, you had a judge, an active judge with a full caseload, resign suddenly. And then three months later, you had an active judge with a full caseload die suddenly. Both of those are unusual events, and to have them happen in quick succession, I, I don't think it's ever happened in the modern history of the Ninth Circuit, perhaps of any court, and so we shouldn't look to that as the circumstance that that guides policy. The, uh, it, was a, it was a very unusual circumstance, and I think ordinarily it should not be a great burden on the circuit to have a, a third judge when you don't have an easy case that the other two judges agree on. To my mind, that's the main dividing line. Having studied federal courts across the country, um, do you, are, are you familiar with some practices that have been employed by other other circuits? Are there are there more consistent or more clear rules that are laid out by other circuits out there, and how how do some of those work? Well, uh, Professor Sachs, um, who we've talked about, uh, started uh, looking at that, and he lists some of the different ways, and I've seen some of them. Uh, myself, I see the footnotes in the various court opinions saying that, you know, so and uh, Judge X uh, died, but uh, this opinion is being issued by a quorum, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a wide variety of approaches, and uh, the rules differ in the specificity. Um, but I think that Professor Sachs is right in saying that this is not a matter on which the circuits need to be given uh, leeway. There are no special circumstances from circuit to circuit, no local uh, conditions that would justify having different rules in each circuit. So I do think that the matter should be addressed on a national level. It could be done by statute, but I think that probably um, there is authority in the judicial conference to use the rulemaking authority to uh, put something into the federal rules of appellate procedure and I would hope that uh, process would begin uh, fairly quickly. There's no need for for, uh, for each circuit to think this through itself and um, um, come up with uh, different rules that are changed over time. I think we've had enough experience now that it's possible to establish a national rule that all circuits would follow. Do you think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that this uh, specific uh, series of incidents could have attracted so much attention. Some have said that it's because the rules aren't uh, as clear as they could be. Others have pointed, as you've noted, that it's unusual to have two active judges go so quickly. I mean, is there any point in discussing the fact that, or discussing who these judges were that left? Uh, uh, Someone said to me, anything that Judges Kaczynski or Reinhardt would have done uh, attracted attention. So it's the fact that it was these two who who left the courts so quickly and so abruptly um, has, has put more attention to this question. Do you think there's any merit in that? Oh, I, I think uh, you're, you're absolutely right about that. Judge Kaczynski was, of course, the 
center of attention for many different reasons over the course of his long uh, judicial career. And Judge Reinhardt was a, a very well-known judge. It just happened that in the month before he died, I, I had the privilege of organizing a conference uh, on the Carter judges. And I think, Nick, you were there. And I think uh, you will yeah. agree that Judge Reinhardt was the star of that conference, that, that people were hanging Certainly. on his every word. So when he becomes the central figure in two the, the two cases that have attracted the most attention, the Bank case that you've mentioned on equal pay, and this tax case with a um, dissent by Judge Reinhardt in the majority, uh, that fact alone has elevated this to a topic of conversation that the rather technical issue might not otherwise have made it. Right. And and that um, leads me to my next question. Professor Sachs, in his letter, notes that uh, when the courts were considering the judicial misconduct complaint against Judge Kaczynski, former Judge Kaczynski, they ultimately decided they no longer had jurisdiction because he was no longer a circuit judge. Professor Sachs points to that as, as a reason for, for why votes like his should not be counted. To my knowledge, the Ninth Circuit has not yet released any opinions uh, like the Altera case uh, where Kaczynski's vote post his departure was counted. Do you think in perhaps revisiting this rule, there's worth consideration making a difference between a resignation like his and a death like Reinhardt? You know, I think that would be possible. It's probably not necessary or desirable. I mean, I think that, again, this is a situation that uh, calls for bright-line rules, and I think Professor Sachs is right, that once somebody is not an Article Three judge, that's it. It doesn't matter why he's not an Article Three judge. For that matter, it doesn't matter if he is required to recuse by statute. If, if under four, Section 455, he must recuse, for example, because the judge discovers a financial conflict, he's required to recuse. Uh, the statute doesn't give him uh, any, any leeway on that. And if he can't participate, that too means that he can't participate. And the what Professor Sachs additionally points out, if you go back to the statute I mentioned, the statute court talks about cases being heard and determined, mm -hmm. and the Supreme Court has said, interpreting this very statute, or actually its predecessor, that a case is determined when it is decided, and it is not actually decided until the opinion is filed with the clerk. So if that's right, and I think it is, then it really doesn't matter why the judge is not participating at the time the opinion is filed, he or she cannot be counted. Professor, if you start to kind of look ahead as the as to what might be the most advisable path forward for the circuit, you, know, you say that the the best thing would be a bright line rule that's applied sort of within the appellate rules generally uniformly uh, uh, around the country. I guess does that mean you know, would you also advise the the Ninth Circuit to create more clarity in its own rules, and, and I guess what sort of um, clarity is, is the kind that you might uh, suggest is the best, is something like, uh, I know one option Professor Sachs 
identified as say in a, a three judge panel if there's no difference between the remaining two judges opinion that could constitute a quorum and and so that would be sufficient what are some of the the things you would advise the ninth circuit to do or you know a, a more general committee creating a, a uniform rules for all, all the circuits well i think you're right in, in suggesting that the ninth circuit does not have to wait for the appellate for the uh, rulemaking process which typically takes a couple of years and something like uh, you know i think i'll just read uh, the suggestion that the professor Sachs made uh, that participation in issuing an order or judgment should be limited to those judges who are authorized to participate when the order or opinion is delivered to the clerk for entry on the docket and I haven't had a chance to study that uh, in detail, but I I hope the Ninth Circuit uh, Advisory Committee, uh, Rules Advisory Committee, will will look at that, perhaps adopt that um, after notice and comment. And meanwhile, I think it is also important to emphasize that a quorum is still two, and for the vast majority of cases, the two judges are in agreement as the third judge would have been. And you do not necessarily have to appoint a a third judge. And I think that's particularly true of unpublished opinions. I was just looking at those uh, statistics, and, you know, the the number of published opinions is really pretty small. It's it's less than 10%. So if those are the cases where we want to have uh, three judges, perhaps even if the two judges are uh, in agreement, we're not talking about a lot of cases that would be affected. We can begin to wrap up here, but uh, Professor, do you have any any final thoughts on, on any of the issues that, that we've spoken about or on the, the Ninth Circuit's rule or approach or just the events of the last few months? Well, one thing I would like to mention, I, I don't think we should uh, close this discussion, I would not like to, to close this discussion uh, without saying a word about the, the situation the, the Ninth Circuit faced with these uh, two departures in quick succession, and and the person who bore the brunt of that was the person you've already mentioned, Molly Dwyer, the clerk of court, because Ninth Circuit's calendars are set in the fall of each year for the entirety of the year that follows. So here you had Judge Kaczynski leaving in December, and Judge Reinhardt passing away in March, which means that all of Judge Kaczynski's 2018 calendars had a vacancy, and three-quarters of Judge Reinhardt's 2018 had a vacancy, and that means that Molly Dwyer had to find a warm Article Three body for every one of those panels. It's the fact that she could do so, you look at the court's calendars, you will see a lot of visiting judges, more than usual. Uh, the Ninth Circuit needs a lot of visiting judges because... The Judicial Conference thinks it needs five more, but the the efforts that were required um, of, of Molly Dwyer to fill those positions, I think, should not go unnoticed. It was a, a huge task, and um, you can see that the panels have the judges. Yeah, it, it did seem like some of the attention drawn to the rule as applied here, and perhaps some of the um, lack of clarity was more of a function of just kind of extraordinary coincidence of these quick and succession departures and not not maybe entirely 
because of um, faultiness in, in the role, certainly kind of a, at least a, a combination of, of both some extraordinary circumstances. Well, yeah, and, and I do think it's important to emphasize that while I'm suggesting that the rules should be clarified and indeed changed, I am not faulting the Ninth Circuit. As you say, they, they had to deal with this um, very, very unusual circumstance of having calendars to fill and two judges who suddenly weren't there. You know, they've done their best. We're talking now about looking ahead how these situations should be handled in the future. We'll go ahead and, and, and wrap it there. Professor Arthur Hellman, professor of law at University of Pittsburgh Law School. Uh, thanks very much for being on the podcast to talk with us. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And of course, thank you as well to our Ninth Circuit Beat reporter, Nick Sonnenberg. Really appreciate your time, Nick. Thanks for having me. And that is our special mini edition of the Weekly Appellate Report here. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to both of my guests, our Ninth Circuit reporter Nick Sonnenberg and Professor Arthur Hellman from the University of Pittsburgh Law School. Thanks also to you for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget, we have a range of options now to find our podcast. You can find it on Apple devices in the podcast app, on Android devices in the podcast player app, and of course, as always, on our site, dailyjournal.com. Don't forget that full episodes of the Weekly Appellate Report, including opportunities for California CLE credit, will resume after Labor Day. For now, I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you then. Have a great week.